Today's reading is uh, two passages from the book of Revelation. Uh, it's Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, and then chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. John is speaking of his vision that he received. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Then from chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Nervous of speaking now. Good morning, everybody. It's lovely to uh, see you. Uh, great. Thank you. can see you even better now. It's lovely to see you this morning. Uh, as we... Um, Come to the second Sunday in Advent, we are doing a little two-part Advent series. Uh, we looked at hell last week, uh, heaven this week. Advent's a time when we not just look forward to Christmas, but we look forward, which is the first coming of Jesus, but we look forward to his second coming. And heaven and hell obviously uh, succeed Jesus' second coming. Well, this second Sunday in Advent, let's uh, begin our time by praying the collect. That's the, the, the appointed Anglican prayer for today, wonderful words as we uh, come to this passage. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Saviour Jesus Christ. And so we plead with you, open our eyes to these wonderful truths, give us a sense of heaven this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen. Friends, what's ha what happens if we forget about he heaven? What happens if we lose sight of the fact that one day we will live, if we're a believer, for eternity with God in the new heavens and the new earth? Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try no hell below us, above us, only sky. So sung John Lennon. And what Lennon went on to sing is almost prophetic. Imagine all the people doing what? Beatles fans. 
living for today. Indeed, living for today. And the person, the Christian, the church, which doesn't think about heaven will end up living for today. People sometimes talk, don't they, about living, about making the ultimate life right now. And so we make bucket lists, don't we, of things we want to do before we're 30, 40, 50, 60, maybe 70. Oscar Wilde quipped, to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people simply exist. We think, I don't want to just exist. I want to live. And so we focus all our energies on our grades or our careers or our love lives or buying the dream home or living the dream retirement. Whatever it takes to make the best possible life now. But friends, the the wonderful and sobering news is that the ultimate life is only possible this side of heaven if our ultimate destination is hell. Let me just say that again. It's a profound thought. We can only make the best ultimate life now if our ultimate destination is hell. Because for those who trust in Jesus, for those who are on their way to the new heaven and the new earth, then however good this life gets, it's nothing compared to what is to come. We need to remember that for the Christian, 99.9% of the blessings of our lives are in the future after we die. In our reading, the Apostle John gives a vision, sees a vision of the new heaven and the new earth. And my prayer is that we'd, be ex- we'd leave here excited by this. There's, there's so much about heaven we could say. We're just going to get a snapshot this morning. But I'd love us to go away excited and therefore living for Jesus this week and into eternity. And in in the news sheet, uh, I've printed a question, I've printed the outline, but the question I want to unpack is this, what is the hope of heaven? And the answer comes in three parts. The hope of heaven is that in the new heavens and the new earth, God's people will be with him, and God's people will serve him forever. We'll We'll break that sentence down into three parts. And the first thing I want to see is the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21 and 22 are a vision of the end of time. After Jesus returns, when the new heaven and the new earth, a physical place, are revealed. Now before we look at that, it's just worth thinking of the different ways we use the word heaven. My father-in-law died, and just before he died, he um, made a profession of Jesus. And we said to the kids, he's gone to heaven. But in what sense has he gone to heaven? Because clearly the new heavens and the new earth don't exist if there's something that's going to be revealed when Jesus returns again. In what sense do we talk of Christians going to heaven? Well, the Bible talks of humans being made of two parts. We are a body and a soul, or a body and a spirit. Soul and spirit are the same thing in the Bible. And together that makes the whole of us. But when we die, that union of soul and body is ruptured. The body goes into the ground... And the soul, if we're a believer, goes to be with the Lord. Heaven, in that sense, is where the Lord is, where God dwells. I wonder if you can think of the time in, I think it's Acts 6, where uh, St. Stephen is uh, stoned. And as he's being stoned, the first martyr in the church, the, 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 the person this church is named after, then uh, he, he prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
and his spirit goes to be with Jesus. Or think of the thief on the cross. Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so in that sense, heaven is wonderful. But there's also a sense that the souls in heaven with God are unclothed. They are waiting for the resurrection of the dead. The time when all, of our, all those who've died, bodies will be raised out of the ground and they will be reunited with their bodies and they will be judged and then they will be ushered into the new heavens and the new earth. And it's the unveiling of this wonderful physical new heavens and the new earth that John sees. Let's have a look at chapter 21, verse 1. Then... That is to say, after the resurrection of the dead and the judgment of the world and the condemnation of those whose names are not in the book of life, if you have a Bible, you can, you can see that from the headings. Then after those things, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. Well, John sees a restored creation. But you see there's an element of continuity and discontinuity here. The word new doesn't so much mean new in, in terms of time or origin, so much as new in, in terms of nature or quality, renewed. The old heaven and earth has ceased to be. But notice it's still a heaven and an earth. There's continuity. It's restored. It's renewed. Now, of course, some of this language is symbolic. John says there'll be no more sea. At the time John's writing, he's imprisoned on the Mediterranean island of Patmos. And I imagine one of his joys is to look out at the sea around. Think of the beautiful turquoise sea of the Mediterranean. And in his imprisonment, find comfort in that. I don't think we're meant to here there's no sea and think there's no more beautiful scenery but rather in the bible in revelation in particular the sea is a, a place of chaos I'm told in chapter 20 it's the place where the dead are it's a, the place from which the, the satanic beast comes as john says there is no more sea i don't think we're supposed to think the end of beach holidays and sailing so much as the end of tsunamis the end of flooding well, John then sees this heavenly city coming down from heaven. Heaven here being the place of the invisible realm where God himself symbolically dwells. And the city comes down. And listen to what John hears from the throne. The dwelling of God is with man, men and women. Heaven is no longer somewhere up there, somewhere out there. No, heaven, the place where God dwells is on this restored, renewed earth. One of the verses of amazing grace it says this, John Newton writes this, When we've been there, 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And isn't that wonderful? No less days to sing God's praise. But in a sense, to talk about heaven as there is a little bit misleading. I know what he means. But in a sense, it's when we've been here, on this renewed, restored earth 10,000 years, we've no less days to sing his praise. I don't know about you, but I find the idea of discontinuity and continuity difficult to grasp. Graciously, I think God has given us a picture. I said last week at the cross, as Jesus endures 
uh, God's judgment, that's a picture of hell on earth. Well, in a sense, we have a picture of heaven on earth as Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus, we're told, uh, in his resurrection body is the first fruits of the new creation. And we see Jesus, don't we, in a new body. It's like his old body, but it's gloriously changed. No longer will it die. No longer will it suffer disease. It can pass through a locked door, do extraordinary things. But there's continuity. People recognize Jesus as Jesus. He still has the scars on his side. No longer his wounds, but his glorious scars. But still continuity between his old body and his new. And you see, when the new heaven and the new earth is revealed, there will be continuity, but it will be wonderfully restored. Look at verse 4. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Or look at chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. And the curse that came when Adam and Eve disobeyed, the curse that affects almost every area of our lives, will be gone. Friends, just think back over this weekend. Think of all the ways we've been affected by the curse, things that have caused us pain or discomfort. Maybe you woke up yesterday morning, and after a busy week of toil, as you sat at your breakfast table, you were ratty with your housemates or your family over breakfast, and afterwards you felt guilty. Well, there will be no more tiredness. There will no, be no more sin or guilt. Maybe you went out for lunch. And as you got out of your car, you banged your head and it hurt. And you got into the restaurant and you had a lovely meal, but it made you feel sick. So you went home and in boredom, you flopped on the sofa. And lying there bored, you pulled out your phone and you started flicking through stuff. And the news about the guy who won the lotto made you feel envious. The news about people being killed made you feel sick. Well, wonderfully, there will be no more pain or sickness or boredom or greed or crime or exploitation. Maybe because it's your weekend and it's your habit, almost instinctively, you pulled out your phone and thought to phone your mum, your dad, perhaps a grandparent, and then the pang of grief set in. Maybe a tear came to your eye. You can't phone them anymore. They're not here. And when that time comes, when the world is restored, there will be no more death. There will be no more grief. There will be no more mourning. Friends, do we see how wonderful this is? The old order has gone. Jesus has defeated evil. God has restored the creation. The curse is gone. We need to banish from our minds the idea that heaven is just disembodied souls playing harps or that heaven is just some eternal state of mind. It's real. It's physical. It's wonderful. It's like this place but renewed and restored the way it's supposed to be. But what will we be doing? What will we be doing? Well, the next two points address this. God's people will be with him. We will be with God. Look again at uh, chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, 
There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Do you see, God will dwell with us. One of there's a time when you were separated from a friend or a fiancé or a spouse or a child and you kept in touch with them by text message or by FaceTime or something. But you long to be in their company. And as the day draws near, you're excited. You, you look forward to it. Well, this is the kind of reunion. The heavenly city comes down like a bride. And Christ, the husband, is waiting eagerly for the day when he will meet his bride, for his wedding day. And do you see what he's going to do? Personally, Jesus is going to comfort us. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, all the times that tears come to our eyes, all the times we want to cry. He will wipe them away. And there are lots of echoes here, aren't there, of the Garden of Eden, most notably in in chapter 22, verse 2 as we have this thing of the tree of life. Well, one of the things that was lost, of course, in the Garden of Eden was the ability of Adam and Eve to walk with God in the cool of the day. And that will be restored. Helen Keller was left deaf and blind after a childhood illness. She was once asked what she would do if she could just have her sight restored just for one day. And she replied, I should call to me all my dear friends and look long into their faces. Isn't that a wonderful picture? These people who I know, who I love, I'll I'll look long into their faces. And you see, that will be our privilege. Verse 22, uh, chapter 22, verse 4. They will see his face. We will see his face. And his name will be on our foreheads. Then we'll be able to gaze into the eyes of the God who made us into the eyes of the Lord Jesus, the one who loved us so much that he gave himself for us that we might be in the new heavens and the new earth with him. And just picture that look of love. And he will claim us. His name will be on our foreheads. We will be his. This, of course, is the culmination of the hope of the Bible, isn't it? Think of the promises right back in the beginning to Abraham to Moses, to David, that God would be with his people. He would dwell with them. And we see that in the Bible partially fulfilled, don't we? As God comes down to the tabernacle and then to the temple. And then, of course, at Christmas, the first Christmas, as Jesus comes and God walks among humans and we sing Emmanuel, God with us. But all of this just a foretaste of that great day when the new heavens and the new earth will be revealed and God will dwell with us. And we wait for that day as the saints through the ages have waited, as God himself waits. Maybe there was a time when you were overcome with a sense of the presence of God. Maybe you are reading your Bible. Maybe you are in church singing some songs. Perhaps you are reading a theology book and a light bulb went on. Maybe you are out doors and, and you saw a great vista and you just thought, wow, isn't God amazing? However stunning that experience, however real it, it, it felt, compared to the time when God dwells with us, it, it, it's almost a nothing. That's not to downplay the experience. The experience is so much greater. It's like the difference between looking at an ultrasound picture of a baby and cuddling them in your arms. 
There's almost no comparison. But friends, you see, this isn't individualistic. It's not just me and God. It's not just you and God. No, it's for all of God's people. It means there'll be a wonderful reunion with those who have gone before us, who have already died in Christ, who we'll one day see again. But verse 2 of 22 talks of the healing of the nations. We're told elsewhere that the nations who walk by the light of the Lamb of God will come in, the kings of the earth will come in and bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. And we see this is a picture of a, a wonderful, harmonious society in a world that's torn apart by division, by violence. Don't we long for a truly inclusive community where there is no more hatred, where there is no more division, where people aren't judged by the colour of their skin or their sexuality or by how much money they have in their bank, but all are accepted as they are in Christ. It's hard, isn't it, for us to imagine that. Of course, that kind of place on earth is a utopia, literally a, a no place. Even in the church, although we experience it in part, after a few moments, sin spoils it. But this will be it for eternity. A wonderful community purified by the blood of the Lamb, healed by the leaves of the tree of life. And it will be a community, imagine a community of our best friends, of our dearest family, only several notches greater. And unlike now, we will never tire of one another. Rather, we will continue to grow in love and intimacy with each other and with Jesus for all eternity. Well, if that's our destination... Do we see why that makes unity in the church so significant? When people of different backgrounds, different ages, different interests come together, even in imperfect unity, it's a picture of heaven. I love dinners for eight. We hold dinners for eight, don't we, a couple of times a year. And different people from the, the congregation sign up to have a meal with people they don't know. And as people of different ages, different stages come together, it's a little slice of heaven in our dining rooms, in our lounge rooms. That's why it's great to stay behind after the service for morning tea. It's not so much about having a cup of tea, but of fellowshipping together, anticipating eternity. And as we do, not just to talk about the TV or, or, or last night's match, but to talk about Jesus. And I guess sometimes that's hard to do, isn't it? Well, today, as you have your cup of tea, why not ask... What excites you most about eternity? What excites you most about heaven? It's an easy way to bring up the conversation. I'm going to stand at the door at the back. I'm going to ask the people going out. That'll stop some people leaving. Uh, if you really don't want to be asked, go out that door. You can go the long way around. But isn't that great? To, to encourage each other. Encourage each other about eternity where we will be forever thrilled to be with one another. Well, God's people will be with him God's people will serve him. We will serve him forever. Look at verse 3 of 22. See if you can spot the two activities we'll be doing in heaven. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him, or as some translations have it, will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Did you spot it? God's servants will serve him or worship him and we will reign with him forever. 
the word worship or serve is problematic for some people. Worship conjures up the idea of floating around playing a harp. It was said of the um, British Prime Minister, Lloyd George, that uh, he confessed, when I was a boy, the thought of heaven used to terrify me more than the thought of hell. I pictured heaven as a place where time would be perpetual Sundays with perpetual service from which there would be no escape. Some of you maybe know that feeling. But friends, that's not what it means. Don't think of it like that. The word worship or serve, they're interchangeable. Two sides of the same coin. But as we know, worship is not just gathering on a Sunday morning. Worship is certainly not just the the, the singing part of our, our Sunday morning. But worship is what we do when we bring our lives under God's rule and seek to do it to please him. And so we can worship God on the football field. We can worship God in the garden. We can worship God in the workplace. We should worship God in, in the bedroom. As one, there's an excellent book on marriage that's provocatively entitled, I think to make this point, Marriage, Sex in the Service of God. Whatever we do can be done as worship, as service of the Lord. But the problem, of course, is that our sin distorts all of our service. There's something we think, I'll do that for God's glory, and we begin to do it, and, and quickly we find that, at least in part, We do it for our own glory. We do it for our own esteem. But then in the renewed creation, thankfully our every breath, our every service will be wonderfully free of sin and will all be for his glory. Isn't that a wonderful thought? But specifically, what will we do? We will reign. We will rule God's creation with him. Now that sounds odd, doesn't it? But it's an idea mentioned several times in the New Testament. Some of us have been doing the Two Ways to Live course. It's an idea that's kind of at the beginning of that, isn't it? God made the world, and he made men on the world as his stewards, as his under-rulers. And of course the problem is that Adam and Eve, who received that commission to rule the world, sinned. But if they'd done it properly, they were supposed to care for the garden, to explore the garden, to, to expand the garden, to enjoy the garden... And all of it free of the curse. So all of it fulfilling and and, and joyful. And not just them, but all humans, of course, have failed to do that. We've all failed to do that. Except for Jesus Christ, who restores the image of God in man. Who lived in this world as Adam and Eve should have done. Always in submission to God, but in right relationship with creation and with the world. And with other humans. And as we become Christians, we begin to have the image of God restored in us, don't we? We become better stewards of creation. We become better stewards of relationships with one another. Think of, think of an office where a grumpy old boss is, is converted and suddenly he begins to, to be a boss like Jesus and it transforms the culture of the office. And on a small scale, that's what each one of us is doing in our spheres of influence, in school, in work, in homes, in our neighbourhoods. But of course, sin knocks us off course. It's crouching at our door But in the renewed creation, there will be no more sin. We will live out that divine summons to be image bearers perfectly, ruling over and enjoying the created order as God designed it to be. The theologian Donald MacLeod makes the point that in the garden, there was scope for for science and technology and as well as theology. It was about expanding and building the garden. And then he says, the same will doubtless be true of the world to come. 
Not only the creator, but the creation too will be an object of wonder to the redeemed. It will challenge our intellects, fire our imaginations and stimulate our industry. The scenario is a thrilling one. Brilliant minds in powerful bodies in a transformed universe. Do you see how different that is to floating on clouds? It might shock you, but there will be work to be done in the new creation. But it will be wonderful. It will be free of frustration, and so we'll relish doing it. And friends, do you see if we grasp that, do you see how that means we don't need to make the perfect life now? Perhaps in obedience to Christ, there have been costs for you. Perhaps for some, there's a a hobby that we love doing. We'd love to do it more and more. We'd, We'd love to devote all our time to it. But actually we don't because we lead a Bible study and we need time to prepare it. Or we serve somebody in the church congregation making a meal. And so we we don't do that hobby we love because we love Jesus and we love others. But that's okay because in the new heavens and the new earth we can do these things. Maybe there's some place on our bucket list we'd love to go to but we don't because we use our holiday to go to equip or to make tea at the, the holiday club. Perhaps we have forgone a promotion in our workplace because we wanted to get home to be with our family, to read the scriptures to our kids before bed. And it's been costly. But do we see we will have all eternity to do those things in glory when we give ourselves to serving God and stewarding his world perfectly in the new heavens and the new earth. We don't need to have it all now because we'll have all eternity in a new, restored, physical place where we'll be with God, serving him forever, ruling his world forever. And friends, knowing we have this great hope for the future, don't we long for others to be there with us? Not just that our friends or our family members would be saved from hell. We sometimes put it like that, don't we? That they're saved from something negative. But that their great gift, their great personality, the great joy that they are, that that too would bring glory to God in the new creation. Think of someone you'll see tomorrow, a friend, a colleague, someone you have coffee with. Don't you long for that person too to live the ultimate fulfilled life? One live with Jesus Christ in the new creation, serving him forever with all of us. Don't you long for that? Doesn't that make us want to pray for them, to speak to them of Jesus, maybe to think, how can we get them to a Christmas event to hear the gospel? Because it will be glorious. A Jewish student once said to a Christian scholar, if I could really think, like our fathers used to, of this life, if I could really think of this life as a mere few seconds preparation for eternity, it would make a lot of difference but I can't. Can you? It's a searching question. Can we? Just a few seconds. All of this life that we know is just a few seconds preparation for eternity. May God grant us the grace to grasp that, that it would change our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that this wonderful truth 
of a new heavens and a new earth, a truth that we've really just scratched the surface of this morning, that you would so write it on our hearts, that we wouldn't live for today, but that it would change us, that we would live with an eternal perspective, pouring all of our energies into glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, change us. Help us to meditate on this truth and be excited by it. And then with that truth in our hearts, firing us, would we be people who change this world because we know we're yours and we know it's not about this life but that this is just a few seconds before an eternity that will be renewed and restored. Do your deep work in us, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.